Well, everybody, welcome. Uh, this is my first weekend back since we got back from Israel. Uh, we, had a, we had a great trip, a little tiring, but a great trip. Uh, I went out to lunch this week with a, a board member from our, our television ministry, and uh, we were talking a little bit about Israel, and it was, kind of came up with what was the most outstanding thing to you. We always do new things on every trip, but what stood out to me this trip was not something new. It was really kind of a little different twist on something old. Now, we always go to the Temple Institute. Now, probably a, a half a mile from the Temple Mount, the Orthodox Jewish community has prepared for the rebuilding of the next temple. And uh, you go inside and right there in front of you is the, the table of showbread, you know, gold that's gonna go in the new temple, the, the altar of incense, uh, the shovels, the forks, everything's for the offerings. In fact, right outside, they've got in a bulletproof container, they've got the candelabra. Now, I'm in front. How many have ever seen a, a picture of a fisherman who fishes? You know, and they take that fish and they go like this and makes him look like four times bigger than he is. And he's way out there. Well, I'm in front, so I look big. That candelabra, I think about six feet tall, has almost a half a ton of 24 karat gold in there. So, so it weighs close to 1,100 pounds. And that is the candelabra that goes into the next temple. Right? Uh, there has never been a time in, in like the last 2,000 years when uh, the Jewish people were preparing for the temple. Now, now, if we're going through the Temple Institute, they've, they've changed, they've relocated, a little bit different. And they said something this trip that they have never said before. And this is what they said. They said, we know where the Ark of the Covenant is. Right? Now, the Ark has to go in. That's the one thing that they could never remake was the Ark of the Covenant. They needed the original Ark of the Covenant. They had never said that before. They said, we know where it is. Now, uh, they didn't tell you where it is. Now, I, I happen to personally know because of a conversation I had. But if I told you, I'd have to kill you. But uh, <laughs> let, me, let, me just tell you, let me just tell you why this is significant. Right? Because in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says that the Antichrist goes into the temple and he stops the sacrifices and the offerings. And it's referred to as the abomination of desolation. And Daniel talked about it. Jesus talked about it. And in the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, He, the Antichrist, will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship, he will even sit in the temple of God and proclaim that he himself is God. So in the New Testament, it talks about the Antichrist going into the temple. Now, there has just never been a time since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when the Jewish people were ready to rebuild. Now, what's stopping them right now is up on the Temple Mount uh, where the temple is believed to have been sits the Dome of the Rock. Now, now, the Dome of the Rock was originally a Byzantine church, but when the Muslims conquered that area, they, they really, they redid the outside. They put that gold dome on it. It's been sitting there for 1,300 years, right? And at some point, some way, according to Bible prophecy, something's going to happen, whether it's an earthquake or it gets hit by a rocket or whatever. But whenever it happens, the Jewish people, they are ready I mean, they've got the diagrams, they've got everything for the new temple. And uh, I just think that's significant because the Bible says that the Antichrist goes into it. Uh, when he goes into it, by the way, is exactly 
300 and a, 300, three and a half years before Jesus sets up his eternal kingdom. So it's, it, it, this, this is just like, woo! You're not excited, I'm excited. Woo! All right, this is awesome. So I just wanna let you know some stuff coming up. How many of you, you just have so much time that you just don't know what to do with all the time because you just don't have enough stuff to do? Nobody. So, so next week, I am going to be talking to you about how to live in this stress-filled 21st century with peace, victory, and purpose. Right? Then, my, then we're going to have Shannon, and then I'm going to do a message on spiritual warfare. Right? Now, the Bible, whether you're, if you're a Christian, you may not know it, but you're in a battle. In Ecclesiastes 8, it says there is no release from that war. You are in a war, and if you don't know it, you're already defeated. You're already defeated. But we're going to talk about how to live that victorious Christian life. I know it's going to be phenomenal. Just wanted to let you know what's coming. But today, I want to talk to you about the three kinds of righteousness that are mentioned in the Bible. Two that will help you. Two, excuse me, two that will defeat you. One that will help you. So first of all, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds or the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, what most people think the law is for, now, how many know about the big 10, the 10 commandments? Right? And by the way, there's not just 10 there are actually 613, right? Now, it says those laws, by obeying those rules and regulations, no one will be made right with God. Not one. Now, we always have thought, you know, God gave the Ten Commandments, and if I obey the Ten Commandments, I'm good. I get to heaven. How many heard that? Good people go to heaven. You just do good stuff, and you'll get to heaven. But the Bible says that no one has ever been made right with God by being good? No, not one. In fact, it says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so the law was not given to make you right with God. The law was given so you'd know you needed help. Right? Now, I was, I, who knows why young boy, 12, 13 years old, right? My, my neighbor and I, Jeff Blake, were playing at his house. And why boys, how many of you know that, that they say that, that that frontal lobe in a male's brain does not develop until they're like in their late 20s. And I know it's not developed when you're 12 or 13, right? So we're playing at his house. We've got these big old marbles and they've got a brick house. And, and I, you say, why were you doing that? I don't know. We were dumb, right? We're throwing them against the bricks. You say, that's stupid. I know, I know. And we're throwing them and everything's you know, not really great, but we're, we, we think everything's great. And they've got this big picture window. And I threw it and I, I, I missed the bricks, but I just got the corner, the bottom corner of that picture window and put like a crack in that picture window. You say, what happened? Well, my dad and Mr. Blake had a talk. And then my rear end met some correction. <laughs> And then all the money I had in the world was gone to buy a new picture window. 
And I told them, listen, this is what I told them. I says, guys, it's just a little hole in the corner. It's no big deal. Just a little, little hole in the corner. And they said, if there is a problem anywhere in the window, the whole window is no good. That's what the law is like. The Bible says if you break the law in just one part, you've broken the whole law. All of it stands together. Right? So Galatians 3 says, therefore, by the, the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. So the purpose of the law was not to make you right with God. It was to show you you're a sinner and you need help. You need someone to take care of you. You need someone to pay for your sin. It says that we might be justified by faith. The law was never supposed to make you right with God. It was supposed to show you that you were a mess and you needed a savior. In Romans chapter three, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not Billy Graham. Not Mother Teresa. Not the Virgin Mary. No, not one. Somebody said, maybe the Virgin Mary made it. No, she said, I rejoice in God, my Savior. That's what she said. How many of you know if you need a Savior, it's because you need to be saved from something. There's not one righteous, no, not one. You think, but what about, no, no, not one. Not one. Nobody is ever made right with God by doing good things. Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 18. He says, there's two people that go up to the temple to pray. One, he's a Pharisee. And he goes in, and I love this. Jesus said, and he prayed to himself. In other words, God's not even listening. He's just praying to himself. How I many when God doesn't listen, you're in trouble already. And this is what he says. He says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, he's standing over in a corner and he's just going, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. The one that thought he was doing all the right stuff and not doing all the wrong stuff, Jesus said he was relying on himself, right? The Bible says in the book of Psalms that no one can ever redeem or ransom himself to God because the price for himself, it is too high. But a lot of people, they, they literally... They think their good works make them right with God. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and this is what he said. He said, what good thing must I do to earn eternal life? People want to do something, and they want to earn it. They want to be good. Right? When, when Jeannie and I graduated from Bible college, we went to Mexico. We lived there for seven years. Uh, immediately, we went to Guadalajara and and uh, in a very short period of time, we had started a church. And I was everything, all right? I mean, I, I cleaned the bathrooms. I swept the floors. I set up the chairs. I did the, the outside lawn care. I did everything. So it was in May, right? We had been there for just about a, exactly a year. 
It was May, right before the rainy season. It gets really hot in Guadalajara. And I'm out there working in the yard. And we had one of these push mowers, you know, not with a motor, but no motor push mowers, you know. And I'm, I'm pushing and we've got some banana plants out there and stuff. And I'm weeding there, you know, and it's 90 some degrees. And, and I take my shirt off and the dirt's flying and the grass is flying. And, and I'm just getting it, I'm getting it all done, getting ready for the, for the weekend. And there's a sidewalk right in front of the, the little church building. It was actually an old laundromat. We converted into a church. And, and this couple is walking by and they see the sign, the place. We had a big sign that said Maranatha, which by the way means Lord Jesus come quickly. And they stopped and they said, is this a religious place? Is this a Christian place? And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, we're Christians. We love the Lord. And they looked at me. Oh, he said, we're holy. And I said, me too. Right, me too. Now I am thinking about 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that says that he that knew no sin, Jesus became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so I said, me too. And he said to me, we are really holy, not like you. And I thought, well, you know, and, and about that time, it started to register on me. I, I looked at him in black shoes, black pants, white shirt, black overcoat, not overcoat, but, but like a suit coat. And it's 90 degrees, right? And then I looked at his wife, black shoes, and her dress went all the way down, black dress, white blouse, black little blazer thing. And then her hair. Her hair like went twisted like this and it just, it just like into infinity. I mean, it was just like, it's just super tall, you know? And, and, and then he said to me, he said, we're holy. He said, our women all wear long dresses. We only wear black, white, and gray. And he said, and our women, they never cut their hair. And I looked and I thought, yep, that's probably right because it's, it's been growing a long, long time. And then he says, and, and our women, they don't use any makeup. And, and I had noticed. Because <laughs> I, I actually, I, I looked at her and, and I thought, all right, I thought, is that his wife? Well, maybe that's his mother. Because... Now, I'm not talking about anybody here, all right? But, but sometimes there's people that they could just use a little help, right? You know, and my philosophy is, you know, if the barn needs painting, paint the barn. I mean, this, we'll, take, we'll take all the help we can get, all right? Uh, and, and she needed help, that's all. She just needed a little help. And then he says, you know, he says, uh, our women, they don't use any makeup and we don't use any jewelry, all right? And he says, and we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't go to movies, we don't watch TV, all right? He said, we're holy, not like you. And then they kind of went. <laughs> now, I want to read you a verse, all right? Now, this is, this is kind of God's attitude. They say, 
Keep to yourself. Don't come near me because I'm holier than you. Here's what God says. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. You know, when you think that your good stuff makes you right with God and your good works makes you better than somebody else, God says it's like smoke in my nostrils. God says that it does not work like that. Isaiah 64, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. He's saying the best efforts that you and I can do to get to God will not get us to God. Our best efforts. That's why John the Baptist, when the Pharisees came to him, he said, you know, he said, he says, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. How many of you know that's not a good way to win friends, influence people? You bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said, therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now, what, what the flesh wants to do is it wants to earn salvation. The rich young ruler said, what good thing must I do to earn salvation? But here's the other thing. The flesh likes to do good things, but if you haven't noticed this, the flesh likes to do bad things. And it really likes to do good things after it did bad things, to pay for the bad things. Uh, somebody brought me a, a piece of chocolate this morning. Wonderful chocolate. I ate it and I told myself, get on the bike for an hour this afternoon. <laughs> pay for the chocolate. How many of I'm talking about? You do bad, you want to do good. All right. When the, when the flesh does bad, it wants to pay for the bad and it wants to do good. The problem with that is, is spiritually we call that penance. When you do something wrong and then you want to pay for what you did wrong. Now the truth is you cannot pay. You cannot pay. You cannot undo what you did. So the Bible does not promote penance. What the Bible talks about is repentance, which is totally different than penance. Repentance is not pray, paying for what you did wrong. Repentance means you're walking in one direction and you have a change of mind and you turn around and you begin to go in a different direction. Right? That's repentance. So what John the Baptist says, is says, when there's repentance, he said there is fruit. In other words, you stop doing what you were doing and you start doing something else. Now you probably never had this, but I'm gonna tell you something that happened to me many years ago. Right? I was repenting. Now, repentance is a good thing. You're supposed to, I, I thought I was repenting. I said, God, I'm sorry. And, and God said, no, you're not. That's what my heart, God said, you're not sorry. You'll probably do it again. And I said, God, I'm really, really sorry. And then I felt like God said to me, you're sorry that I don't like your sin because you like it. You see, being sorry that God doesn't like it is not repentance. If, if, if in your mind you're still going back there again, that's not repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, right? We say, I'm not gonna go that way anymore. And you turn around and you start to go in a different direction and there's fruit that you're going in the opposite direction. There's fruit. John the Baptist says there needs to be fruit of your repentance. If there's not, all you are is sorry that God doesn't like it. Right? And what the Bible promotes 
is not penance, but repentance, right? Our best works, if we do them to justify ourselves, profit nothing. In fact, I, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13 says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. He's saying, if I do it to be seen, if I do it to pay for what I have done wrong, it profits me nothing, nothing, right? We need to do it as an act of love because we love God, because we love people, because there has been true repentance in our hearts. So the first type of righteousness the Bible talks about is self-righteousness. And that type of righteousness will never make anyone right with God. The second type is found in the book of Job. Now, by the way, one of Job's friends is speaking in the 25th chapter. And, and, and when God shows up, he rebukes this guy and the other two that are with him. And he says, look, you have not spoken what's right. right? But this is what he says. He says, even the moon doesn't shine. The stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. The devil in Revelation is called, this is one of Satan's names, the accuser of the brethren. That's his name, the accuser of the brethren. Right? So basically what Satan does is he sends a demon who gets on this shoulder and says, do that, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And then you do it and he gets on the other shoulder and he says, you scum, you maggot, you worm. I can't believe you did that. God's mad at you. God's not going to bless you. God's not going to answer your prayers. Look what you did. You call yourself a Christian. You are not a Christian at all. You're like an anti-Christian. Why you're doing all these terrible things. The accuser of the brethren. Right? Now, <laughs> he said in the verse, how much less man who's a maggot? The son of man who is a worm. Jeannie and I lived for two years in an Indian village in Mexico. And uh, I, I really was trained in ministry under the pastor there. His name was Benancio. Uh, he was an Otomi Indian. He was probably four foot eight, 220 pounds, you know. And uh, he had started at that time 150 churches. And in our little village, we had a church, and we had church 365 days a year. So if we weren't out someplace else, we'd go to church. And, and this, was, this was crazy. Now, in, in all the times I went with him preaching, well over a thousand times, I never heard him preach once because he would never preach. If I was there, he would get up. Now, he never one time, never asked me to preach, never, right? He never warned me I was going to preach. He would just get up and say, El hermano Dwayne, that was me, hermano Dwayne, okay, is going to get up and he's going to preach. Right? So I preached every time, every single time, all right, he would have me preach. And in the, the church there, one of the favorite songs that the people had, all right, was this song, and this was, the, this was the chorus, I'm a maggot, I'm a worm, I'm a maggot in the dust. You want to preach after that? Everybody's singing they're a worm and they're a maggot, right? And here's the other thing, uh, at least half of the people could not read. And so they got all their doctrine from songs. And they would, they would you quote verse by verses of the Bible, they'd quote songs. This is the song says, 
The song says I'm a maggot. The song says I'm a worm, right? Now, listen, the devil will tell you every day that you're a maggot, that you're a worm, that God is mad at you, that God is not gonna answer your prayers, that God is not gonna bless you, that you're a degenerate, right? But let me, let me just give you a, a verse here. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. For God was in Christ, restoring the world to himself, no longer counting or holding men's sins against them, but blotting them out. You know what the devil tells you? He tells you God's mad because you did this, you did that, you did the next thing. And the Bible says that God is not holding your sins against you, right? God is not mad at you because of what you did. Your sin is not keeping you away from God unless you let the devil tell you that your sin is keeping you away from God and you believe the devil. God no longer counts or holds men's sins against them, but blotting them out. That's what he did through Jesus. He blotted your sin out. He paid for your sin completely, totally. So we've got self-righteousness. And then we've got a lot of people who live really in self-condemnation. Their, 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 their righteousness is nothing. They see themselves as a worm, as a maggot, right? Now, if that's the case, you'll never live in victory. But there is a third type of righteousness found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says, for he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So at the cross, God took, I wish I had brought a Matryoshka doll. How many know what a Matryoshka doll is? All right. They're these Russian dolls and they're hollow. Right? You spin the top off and there's a bunch of other stuff inside and you keep on taking them out. It's like God spin the top off you and he took everything that was inside you, every bit of unrighteousness and he took it out. And he took that and he put it in Jesus. But first he took every good thing that was in Jesus and he stuck that inside you and spun the top back on. He that knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In Romans 5, 17, it talks about the free gift of righteousness. It's a gift. You cannot obey rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and be good enough and be made right with God. But you can, by faith, receive the free gift that God took all of your unrighteousness put it in Jesus, took all of Jesus' righteousness and put that inside of you. Now, Romans chapter one, verse 16. Why don't you listen to this? The gospel, it's the power that emeates from God. It saves all who believe in it. Listen, it reveals God's way of making men as righteous as himself. You got that? So the gospel is God's way of making you as righteous as God. Now, if you're religious, that just bothers you, 
right? But what God did was took your unrighteousness and put it in Jesus and took Jesus' righteousness, who is God in the flesh. He took God's righteousness and put it inside of you. That's why he became sin that you might be made the righteousness of God. So God forbid, but suppose that your heart stopped in 90 seconds and your body died. The Bible says in Luke 16 that angels will carry you. Now, if you're a Christian, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Instantly, faster than the speed of light, you will be carried into God's presence and you will live in God's presence forever. You don't go someplace for 10,000 years and suffer and get purified, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So with the righteousness that you have right now, you are going to live in God's presence and hang around with God forever, forever, right? So what does the devil do? He realizes if you know that, his days of stomping on you are over. So he constantly tries to pick up things that you did in your past, right? And he says that makes you unrighteous. It was never, it was never meant to make you righteous. It was meant to show you, you need a savior, right? And there's just one. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. So, so what this righteousness does, it just frees you from this sense of guilt and unworthiness. Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, I want to, I want to close with this scripture. Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works that you may serve the living God? So what Jesus' redemption did, his blood, it purchased you, 1 Peter, says you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the vain conversation received by the addition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Silver and gold could never pay the price for your redemption. It took the blood of Jesus. Now, it says here that that blood will purge your conscience, right? In other words, when you think about yourself, you won't think about yourself and say, oh, I'm a sinner. I did this, I did that, I did the next thing. You know, there's so many people, Christian people, I mean, they'll come up to you, and this is how they say, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm John, I'm divorced. I'm Bill, I've got alcohol problems. I'm Tom, I've been addicted to heroin for 14 years. You identify yourself based on your sin, your difficulties, your problems the things that are wrong in your life that you know aren't right. And that's how you identify yourself. But the Bible says that Jesus' blood will purge your conscience from dead works. And you won't see yourself based on what the devil tells you you are anymore. You won't see yourself as a maggot. You won't see yourself as a worm. You won't see yourself as unworthy. You won't identify yourself based on the things that you did. Now listen, you may have done everything the devil tells you you did. But you are not who he says you are. Because if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. 
Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And by the way, the Bible says he renews you every day. He renews you every day. Somebody says, oh, if I could just be like I was when I first got saved. Every day, he renews you every day. Every day. So, listen. It will purge your conscience that you may serve the living God. Now, I want to give you a test. No grades, just going to give you a little test. Right? Ask you a couple questions. This is how you can tell if your conscience is purged. Number one, ask yourself this question. Do I deserve God's best blessings? Do I deserve the best that God has? Because when your conscience is purged, there's nothing, nothing that disqualifies you from God's best. Nothing. But if you feel, well, you know, I really don't deserve God's best. I I just want to cabin in the corner of glory land, right? It's because your conscience has not been purged. Second question, because it's right here in the verse. It says that you may serve the living God, right? When, you're con- when you know that Jesus' blood paid for your sin, that he took your unrighteousness and paid for it, and God gave you his righteousness, Remember, Romans 1.16 said it's God's way of making men as righteous as himself. Right? It says that you may serve the living God. Do you feel qualified to serve God? If somebody said to you, they need, they need someone to teach back in children's church, the sixth graders, would you think, well, not me because I did this, I did that, I did the next thing. Or better yet, If somebody came up to you and said, I've been to the doctor, I've been diagnosed with terminal cancer, would you please pray for me? Would you think, not me, you need somebody more holy. You need somebody more worthy. You need need somebody that God would use. Because when your conscience is purged, the Bible says it's that you may serve the living God. Nothing disqualifies you when your conscience has been purged because Jesus paid it all. He paid for everything that you or I ever did or will do. It's paid for. And he took him that knew no sin and he became sin for us. He took your unrighteousness that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now listen, When your spiritual life is not based on your performance, listen, there's not one person here that you won't blow it sometime in the next month. And if your spiritual life is based on your performance, it's going to go like this. And you, 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 you never get that place of real victory. But when your spiritual life is not based on your performance, it's based on his performance. His performance is done once for all. And he obtained a perfect, eternal redemption for us. See, when your faith is not in your works, but in his work, well, the Bible says it like this in the book of Proverbs, that the path of the righteous is like the sun that just keeps getting brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. Your spiritual life does not go up 
and down. Your spiritual life just keeps on going up. All right. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? You might be here today and you're away from God. You once lived for God, but you have drifted away. Not intentionally, but something like a wedge got in between you and God and you have drifted away. Today is your day to come back to God. But there are millions of people in America today that if you ask them, are you a Christian? This is what they say. I hope so. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be. Now, the Bible says to know that you have everlasting life. See, you're not supposed to hope that you're a Christian. Hope you're on your way to heaven. No, you're supposed to know that you're forgiven, that you're right with God, that you're on your way to heaven. And if you don't know that for sure, you're not where you should be with God. I want you to listen. Please do not gamble with your soul. You need to know. So Jesus made a number of statements. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. That means that all of my efforts could never make me right with God. All my trying to obey the do's and don'ts. And all of yours could never make you right with God. He said, there's just one way, and that's through him, because he's the one who can give you that gift of righteousness. Everyone's welcome in heaven. Everybody gets in the same way. Everyone can meet the requirements. Jesus said, you must be born again. You need to give him all of your heart and all of your life, holding nothing back. Now, if you're here, you're not right. You don't know where you stand with God. You know you need to get right with God. I'm going to count to three. And when I say three, would you please lift your hand and give me the privilege of praying with you? And we're going to pray, and God's going to hear that prayer. And when we say amen, you're going to be right with God. I want you to get ready. Lift that hand on three. The first thing that you're saying to God is, God, I know I need a Savior. And I know there's just one, and that's Jesus. And I'm coming to Jesus today to be saved and to be forgiven. One. Secondly, you're saying, God, today I'm going to give Jesus all of my heart, all of my life. I'm holding nothing back. Two. Now get ready. As you lift your hand, you're saying, today I'm going to receive Jesus. He's going to come into my heart. He's going to blood wash me from my sin, make me a new person on the inside. I'm going to be a part of your family. I'm going to be on my way to heaven. Three, lift that hand up. Pray with me. Pray with me. I see that hand, that hand, that hand, and that hand, and that hand, and that hand. Are there others? Include me. Thank you. God bless you. Back there by Ron. Thank you. God bless you. Up in the balcony. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Others. Thank you. Way in the back, in the middle. God bless you, sir. All right, right over here to my left. Thank you. Now, I'm going to ask everyone to stand, but nobody move, please. This is kingdom business. Now, if you lifted your hand, please look right at me. Would you move to the aisle that's nearest you? Bring whoever you came with. Bring your coat. Bring your purse. Bring whatever you need to bring. But make your way right down here from the balcony. You come on down. We're going to wait for you. But we're going to pray. God is going to meet you right here. When we say amen in just a moment, your past is going to be gone. You're going to be right with God. You're going to be on your way to heaven. This is your day. Most important decision you will ever make in your entire life. Come on down over to my right. Make your way down from the balcony. You come on down. We're going to wait. We're going to pray with you. 
God is going to meet you right here today. Awesome. Awesome. Come on. Romans 10. Jesus said, you confess me before men. Right there. Right there. I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Now, Romans 10, verse 13. I want you to listen careful to this verse. Right? It says, whosoever, that means you. This is going to work for you. It says, we'll call on the name of the Lord. We're going to call on his name the way the Bible shows us to. And this is God's promise, right? Will be saved, right? So when we say amen, you're going to be forgiven. You're going to be right with God. You're going to be saved. You're going to be on your way to heaven. Awesome. From the balcony, they made it. Give them a hand. Guys, God bless. Awesome. Awesome. Now, all right, again, whosoever, this is going to work for you. All you need to do is pray this from your heart. So I'm going to ask everybody to take one hand, place it over your heart, lift your other hand towards heaven, and let's pray together. I want you to make these words your own. Say, oh God, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I believe he rose again. And today I give him all of my heart and all of my life. I hold nothing back. He's my savior, my king. I'm going to live for him every day. I thank you that you've heard my prayer, that I am forgiven, that my past is gone, that you make me a new person on the inside a part of your family today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.